Before David speaks to us this morning, let's stand and sing Cornerstone. <clears throat> a few weeks ago, an EF4 tornado carved a deadly path through western Kentucky, demolishing homes, businesses, church buildings, and lives without discrimination. Some who are God's people were affected, and some severely. And so people ask, God, why do you hide your face? We have six ladies in Castleberry Church who are with child, and we rejoice in this. It's wonderful. It's joyous. But I know a couple who desperately want a baby and have earnestly, earnestly prayed for one, but so far they have not conceived. This couple may ask, God, why do you hide your face? I've stood beside people as we buried babies. I've stood beside them when we buried loved ones who died in the prime of life. I've stood beside them when I buried people I thought we surely and desperately needed to live. And we asked God, why did you hide your face? We can multiply similar examples to which we can raise the same question. God, why do you hide your face? This, in fact, is the cry of Psalm 44. I took the words right from the text, and I quoted them verbatim from thousands of years ago, and they are as real and relevant today as ever when they were first penned by the psalmist. And this brings us to our study today of Psalm 44, a completely honest psalm that is at the same time both disturbing and reassuring. Would you open that psalm? And let's read it, get it before us, and think about it seriously and carefully. Psalm 44. O oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations. But them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give you thanks to your name forever, Selah. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoiled. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You made us byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemies and the avenger, 
all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your ways. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with a shadow of death. If we had got, forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover us? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust and our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Well, first, I want us to get the gist of the psalm before us. The psalmist knew Israel's history. He knew what had gone on in the past. And he was living in Israel's present. In the present, there was some kind of defeat. And he knew it. And you'll see he's forthright about God. He's forthright in what he says about God, and he's forthright in talking to God. He knows what God has done, and he has full conviction about what he can do. He's also completely honest in asking questions that all of us ask. Maybe we just ask them to ourselves because we don't want to ask them out loud, but we ask them, God, why did you hide your face? These questions arise in our minds as we watch life unfold around us and before us. And into this conundrum, this paradox, this enigma, the ancient psalmist wrote a psalm that is as current and relevant as ever. I suspect that many, if not most of us, have wondered if God is really in control. Why doesn't he do something? God, why do you hide your face? If this hasn't crossed your mind recently, I'm guessing that it won't be too long before it does. We need this psalm's message. We need this psalm's message. So let's look at it together. The message begins this way, by expressing confidence in God's sovereignty in the past. Verses 1 through 8. Confidence in God's sovereignty in the past. The psalm begins by addressing God whom they knew because of what their fathers had told them. The fathers told their children what God had done in the past. They had told them about the mighty acts of God, especially the exodus from slavery in Egypt and translating the nation of Israel from Egypt to the promised land of Canaan. Let me pause to say that here's an important example and precedent for us. For mothers and fathers, we must teach our children as these fathers did. We must teach them and remind them of all that God has done in the past. Someone may scoff at studying an ancient book like the Bible because there are a lot of contemporary books that we ought to study. Think again. In his now famous book called Knowing God, J.I. Packer boldly writes this. Listen. We are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world, 
becomes a strange, mad, and painful place. And life in it is disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life, blindfold as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. We must know about God and we must teach our children about God. So back to the psalm. The psalm declares that what they heard and know is that what was done was done by God's hand, not by their own hand, not by themselves. They didn't transport themselves from uh, slavery to the promised land. No, it was by God's hand, by his arm, by the light of his face, the psalmist says. He was pleased with his people, so he delivered them and transplanted them, while at the same time driving out the nations and afflicting other people. You know, I want to pause again to say that we have a responsibility and a great opportunity sometimes to help the world know and understand as much as we can who God is and what God has done. This is true history. It's true history. It's what really happened. People today are trying to rewrite history to make it be what it was not. But changing textbooks and tearing down monuments doesn't change what happened. We know the true history. We know what God has done. I'm not talking about American history. I'm talking about biblical history. We know what God has done. And we must tell it when we can. So take a look at verse 5 in the psalm. Verse 4, I should say. The psalmist declares, You are king. You are my king who accomplished salvation for his people. The psalmist recognized that what has been done has been done through you, that is, through God. O oh God, through you we have knocked down our foes and trampled those who are against us. It's not my bow, it's not my sword that saves us or that I trust. It is God who saves us and shamed our enemies. In God we have boasted. To him we give thanks. And we have much to thank God for regarding our salvation. Think about that. In a nation where we live with smart bombs and all sorts of devices and instruments to operate in the dark and to intercept missiles and protect us, we must not forget who is in control. We must not forget who saves us from our worst enemy. That's God. I want to quote from Paul now. Listen to him in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, there's the most significant thing in all the world, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It's not we ourselves, it's what God has done. So our confidence 
is not a shot in the dark. God has a record. We can easily trace it and track what he has done through his goodness and greatness, by his power and grace. So before we raise our questions and express our consternation, first we must remember and we must be confident in God's sovereignty in the past. That's where the psalm begins. But after the expression of that confidence, the psalmist jars and maybe even shocks us by what he does next. Verses 9 to 22. He honestly acknowledges the problems of the present. He begins by expressing confidence in what God's done in the past. He's heard it. He known, he's known it. He believes it. But now he honestly acknowledges the problems of the present. If we think this is one of those psalms that just thinks good thoughts and kind of skims over the disparities and the despair of life, we're clearly wrong. The psalmist becomes brutally honest about the present. There is no question about God being in control. He is. He was and he is. But in the present reality, the psalmist sees defeat and retreat and slaughter and plundering. The situation is bad. And he is not reserved in saying so. Sometimes our situation is bad. And we don't have any explanation for it. We have remained faithful, but the situation is still bad. This psalm says, this is key, this psalm says that disaster comes sometimes despite faithfulness. And you know, we know bad things happen when God is disregarded. When people break covenant with God, we know bad things happen. But note what the psalmist says at verse 17. He says, we have not forgotten you. We have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your ways. And so we begin to see a major feature and purpose of this psalm. And we must develop a healthy realization that disaster may come despite faithfulness. Disaster may come despite faithfulness. And we can be forthright about this. This is something we learn from the psalm. The fact of this psalm tells us that we do not have to suppress those kind of thoughts. That we do not have to suppress questions. We can ask hard questions. Is it okay to say to God, why do you hide your face? Why don't you do something? We can be honest about this, not in a disrespectful way, but we can be open and pure and searching in a respectful way. The fact is, this is key, the fact is sometimes there is no obvious explanation for our suffering. The psalmist does not offer any explanation. He says this is reality, defeat, retreat, slaughter, plundering, and we've been faithful. We've been righteous. No explanation. You know, we have to take times of blessings and times of barrenness. We have to take times when God seems near and sometimes when he seems far away. 
We have to take the positives and the growth, but we also have to accept the negatives and stagnation. We don't want the hard times. We don't want the bad times. We don't want to think or talk about them, but they are real, and they surely come. But the psalmist makes the boldest statement of all in verse 22. Take a look at it. It's a statement directed to God. Yet for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. For your sake, meaning for God's sake. Listen, sometimes God acts for his own sake because he is God and he knows the best and the right thing to do. And he does it without explanation. He is God. It is for his sake. He does it, though sometimes people miss it and sometimes people misunderstand it. He does it because he's God. You know, we typically conclude that bad things happen to us because of what we have done. We feel guilty. We feel like we're being punished. But this psalm says otherwise. Derek Kidner says, and I quote, This psalm is perhaps the clearest example of a search for some other cause of disaster than guilt and punishment. Sometimes what God does is not connected to our actions. It is for God's sake that he acts. Kinder further writes, This psalm implies the revolutionary thought that suffering may be a battle scar rather than punishment. So the psalmist ex expresses confidence in God's sovereignty in the past. And he acknowledges the problems of the present despite his people's faithfulness. He's honest about it. He doesn't make any attempt to explain it or gloss it over. So let's take the psalm as it stands. But he does one more thing that we must notice together to round out our study this morning. He does one more thing. He trusts in the love of God for the future. He honestly raised questions and acknowledged problems. He says, we've been defeated. We've retreated. We've been slaughtered. And we were faithful to God the whole time. He, so he, he honestly raises questions and, and acknowledges problems, but God is still in view. That's significant. The psalmist calls on God to act, trusting that God is still a God of love. You might be surprised to learn that Psalm 44, verse 22, is quoted in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is that wonderful chapter in which Paul talks about life. It comes through the Spirit who indwells us. There's a law of sin and death, but we've been set free from it. And then he goes on to say, if God is for us, who is against us? And in that paragraph, he quotes from Psalm 44 and verse 22. And Paul raises other questions in this passage in Romans 8. He raises the question, who will bring a charge against God's elect? He raises the question, who will condemn us? And who will separate us from the love of God? 
love of Christ? Well, he, he entertains some answers to that. He says, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. And it's at the end of that list that he says, as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So, let's ask Paul's questions this morning. Who is against us? Who will, who will charge? Who will condemn? Who will separate us from God's love? I'll tell you, there are plenty of answers, stark and harsh answers. The world, at any moment, is against us. The world, at any moment, is ready to kill us. For the world, we are nothing but sheep to be slaughtered. But does that separate us from God's love? And Paul's answer is no. No, he says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all these things, he says, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I would ask, in what things? Well, in tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sore. In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. We might be killed like being sheep who are slaughtered. You know, slaughtered sheep didn't do anything wrong. They're just sheep. But they were slaughtered. We might be slaughtered. But let me tell you, the Lord is our shepherd. And he feeds his sheep. And he stays beside his sheep in the valley of the shadow of death. May I say that the Lord leads and loves his sheep. God is for us. In all these things, God is for us. He loves us. But you know what? That doesn't mean that we make perfect sense out of everything that happens. It might happen for his sake. What it means, though, is that we're more than conquerors through him who loves us. And nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Listen, we may not understand what happens we may not understand what happens, but we can never doubt that God loves us. He so loved the world that he gave his only son. He so loved the world that Jesus went to the cross. Does that answer all our questions? No. Does it resolve every doubt? No. But it shines new light on suffering. I want you to listen to one other quotation this man's testimony about suffering and the cross. He says, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? God laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world, a world of flesh and blood, a world of tears and death. He suffered for us our sufferings become more manageable in light of his. There's still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark. It is the mark of the cross, which symbolizes divine suffering. 
and may I add that expresses God's love. The cross expresses God's love. You know, we feel like the psalmist at times. Let's go to verse 23. We feel like this. Awake, Lord. Why are you sleeping? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust and our belly clings to the ground. That's how we feel at times. But this is what we believe. And this is where the psalm comes to an end. This is what we believe. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. It is significant that the psalm ends with a note about the steadfast love of God. We endure pain and suffering and problems and dangers and death and disease. We may not understand it all. We may not be able to explain it. But in it all, we do it surrounded by the love of God. We do it all surrounded by the love of God. And that makes the difference. Psalm 44 is a hard psalm. It is brutally honest and forthright. It's one you have to think about. But I'll tell you, it's one we need in this COVID world where we live. It's one we need to remind us that despite what happens, despite what happens, God's people are surrounded on every side by God's love. And we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced, Paul said, that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and amen to that. Despite what happens, we are surrounded by the love of God. This morning, I hope you understand that and appreciate what, the, what that means. That Jesus went to the cross for you. Not because you were a nice, warm, loving, lovable person. But because we were sinners. Sin sick and hell bound. He went to the cross for us. To take our broken life and make it new. And save us now and forever. And if we can help you with that this morning in any way, we, we want to do that. We're going to sing this song, I believe, just as I am. I come broken. We can come to God just as we are. But he won't leave us that way. He will make us new by his love in the death of Christ. If we can help you be God's person this morning, Walk closer to him. We're standing ready to do that. And we're encouraging each other as we stand and as we sing.